1: explosion of interest in mindfulness, you know, in these last five to 10 years, I thought it might be helpful to explore some of the nuances of what mindfulness is and what it isn't. And how (coughs) mindfulness is really the fundamental methodology of inquiry. It's a fundamental methodology the Buddha proposed on our path (coughs) of awakening. And the teachings of mindfulness have their root in the teachings of the Buddha. I think it was mentioned last night in one very well-known discourse, (coughs) Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And it's pretty remarkable to think that A discourse the Buddha gave over 2,600 years ago still has such relevance and power and appropriateness for our lives 2,600 years later. So clearly, there's something very essential and very powerful about these teachings. When I was working on my last book, Mindfulness, Somebody asked me, I was in the staff dining room here. Somebody asked me if I could describe the meaning of mindfulness in just a few words. And I thought, well, it's a bit like asking, what is art? Please explain art in a few words. Well, what is love? It's not so easy <coughs> to encapsulate it very briefly So one of the common or most frequent descriptions of mindfulness, something you're probably all familiar with, you know, people say, well, be mindful, it means living in the moment, living in the present. You know, not being continually lost in thoughts of past and future, but we're actually here. So that's a pretty good starting place. In order to be mindful, we need to be present. We need to be in the present. But simply living in the present is not enough. That by itself is not mindfulness. So, an example I've been using for quite a while, something I call black lab consciousness. Are you familiar with the dogs, you know, the Labrador Retrievers, the black lab? They're very friendly, playful dogs. Really delightful. So when you're playing with them and you're watching them, <clears throat> they're running around, you know, smelling and sniffing and looking and going here and there. They're clearly in the present moment. You know, it doesn't seem they're not thinking about the future. They're not thinking about the past. They are engaged in the present. But they don't look very mindful. <laughs> I mean, that may be a projection, a human, <laughs> a human viewpoint, <laughs> but I don't really see any evidence of mindfulness there. <laughs> this, so you can be in the present, you know, and fully engaged, but mindfulness means there's something else that's needed. So it's helpful to understand what else is needed in order to be mindful besides simply being in the present. The importance of this is expressed by a Portuguese poet, uh, Ferdinand Pessoa. And he said, live you say in the present, live only in the present. But I don't want the present, I want reality. So that's a very kind of profound understanding because we can be in the present but relating to it in a very, either a superficial way or a very conceptual way. So it's not just being in the present we want, we want reality. We want the connection with what is true. So then the question is what will take us beyond black lab consciousness? How do we move up the evolutionary scale? What's the quality of mind or what do we need to add to that that will actually lead us to awakening? An added element, which is a part of mindfulness, could be called the observing power of the mind. And the implication of this is that as we're observing different phenomena, we know that we're knowing. So a black lab is running around, and it's knowing sights and sounds and smells. It's not unconscious. It's aware of all these things. But as far as we can tell, there's there's no meta, M-E-T-A, quality to it. It doesn't look like the black lab knows that it's knowing. So when we add the observing power to living in the present, whether we're observing the breath or the body or thoughts or sounds or sights. It's connecting in the present, we're in the present, and we know that we're knowing. So this is, this is another dimension to our awareness, to our consciousness, that begins to clarify the meaning of mindfulness. So very clear uh, example of how to notice and understand this difference between what I'm calling black lab consciousness, you know, the simple being present awareness and the observing power of mind when we know that we're knowing. Very simple way to uh, experience or taste this difference for yourself Um, can be as you're watching the mind and uh, thoughts that are rising in the mind and begin to see and investigate very clearly for yourselves the difference in your experience of when you have been lost in a thought. Has anybody had that experience? (laughs) Not uncommon. <laughs> okay, so we've all had that. So notice what is it like, what's the experience like of being lost in a thought contrasted with the experience of that moment when we wake up from being lost. The moment of recognizing, oh, thinking. Right there. That, that is a very uh, powerful moment. And it happens endless times a day. So that you have many opportunities to really see and explore what the difference in your experience is. So very often in practice, people will be doing their practice in whatever way, beginning with the breath, the body, different phenomena. And the mind will get lost in a thought. And very often when people wake up from being lost, they just hurry back to some object you know, the breath or the body, whatever it is. But if we do that, we're missing the opportunity to really deeply, intimately uh, experience the difference between being lost and being awake. So I wouldn't rush back. I would take just a few moments really, but in every moment that you wake up from being lost, which will happen many, many times. Highlight that moment and realize, oh, this is what wakefulness is, this is what awareness is, right? In this moment, I'm not lost, I know that I'm knowing. I know that there's thinking. And just contrast it, even if it's a slight looking back, you know, retrospectively, contrast that quality of mind with how it had been when you were lost. Do you follow? So it gives a very clear, We just get a very clear sense of the difference. And it's really the difference between ignorance and wisdom, between delusion and wisdom. So it's a powerful moment. Don't overlook it. And the good news is that for as many times in the day as you get lost, exactly that many times would you awaken. Because nobody stays lost forever. You know, we're we're lost in our thoughts and fantasies, whatever. And at a certain point, we wake up. So you actually have many moments of awakening already during the day. It's just that those moments are often overlooked. So my suggestion is don't overlook them. Really, really connect with that quality because it will illuminate the nature of the aware mind. I find this particularly uh, obvious and, uh, in a way, fascinating. Uh, in doing this exercise and paying attention in this way while walking, or moving about, because the contrast between the simplicity of just the awareness of some body movement, you know, of taking a step, it's so simple and it's so basic, and just taking a step. And it's so easy to be aware of that. And then as you're walking, you know, the experience we've all had is the mind gets caught up in some mind-created world. And for however long, it can be a step or two steps or 10 steps, we are lost in this world. We're lost in the movies of our mind. (laughs) And then we wake up from that back to another step. And so, whenever, whenever I notice that, it's it's at a certain point, it's amusing, (laughs) because what just happened? (laughs) You know, here I was just walking, walking, and all of a sudden, I've created a whole mind world, which I've inhabited with all whatever attendant emotions are associated with it. (laughs) It's all self-created in our minds, you know. And the contrast—it's just very obvious. Step, 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 dream world of the mind. Step, 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 another dream world. It reveals, it reveals in a very clear and direct way how much of our days spent dreaming. Our dreamt lo- uh, uh, spent lost in these movies of our minds. So here on retreat, when you really have nothing else to do, your only job is to pay attention. You know, whatever you're doing, this gets very clear. And it's, it's motivating, you know, because we see how often the mind slips into that deluded state where we don't know what's going on. We're simply lost in the story. So this observing power of mindfulness, you know, where we know that we're knowing, this opens up many new areas of investigation and exploration when we're grounded in this observing power of mind and not lost in the story and not simply running around like a black lab. We're present, we're in the present, but we know that we're knowing, we're aware of what's arising, can begin to explore things in a whole different way, a whole different level. And one of my favorite places of investigation revolves around a very simple question. And if you hold this question uh, in a meaningful way, it will change your life, hopefully for the better. <laughs> and the question is, what is a thought? You know, we have all these thoughts all day long going through our my thoughts or pictures, images. And mostly we are obsessed with the content of the thought, with what the thought is saying, with the story of it. You know, that's where we're involved and we're caught up and we're reactive to or motivated by, but it's all about the content of the thought. What I'm suggesting is not that. I mean, that has its own value to be aware of the content, but what I'm suggesting is something different. It's not what is the thought saying It's asking the question in the time of thinking. So it's a direct exploration. It's not conceptual. When we're thinking, when thoughts are arising in the mind, to ask the question or hold the question, well, what is a thought? And then we're looking directly at it. It's revelatory. Because... When we look at the nature of thought, not its story, not the content. When we look at the nature of thought, we see that as a phenomenon, it's little more than nothing. It's just just like that. It's just like this little, it's so ephemeral and so insubstantial. And what is so amazing in our lives through seeing this is realizing that when we're unaware that we're thinking, thoughts have tremendous power in our lives. Thoughts are running our lives. Go here, go there, do this, do that, get married, get divorced, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) It's, It's like we're the slaves of our thoughts. These are the little dictators of the mind. So this is what matters. These thoughts have so much power in our lives when we're unaware of them. And when we are aware of thought as thought, we see that there's nothing much there. So that is tremendously liberating. You know, where we come out from the dominion, you know, of our thought conditioning. Do you see the potential here? I mean, it's so freeing. And of course, we get caught. This is a very long established pattern of being lost in our thoughts, of not seeing them clearly. So it's not that by seeing this once, all of a sudden we're going to be free of being captivated by the thought process. But we see it once, we see it twice. We keep on looking in this way. And slowly our... Understanding is transformed, and thoughts no longer have the power that we have given them for so long. So in that situation, we're then freer to choose which thoughts are helpful, which are skillful, which are going to be on with leading for us, and which thoughts are not, which thoughts are just the cause of suffering. And we're more easily able to let them go because we understand and know Not intellectually, we know because we've seen it ourselves that thought as thought is really empty. There's not much there. So this is just one small example with huge ramifications of the power of observation, of this kind of knowing. So hopefully you can begin to get a sense of This is not a trivial undertaking. You know, we're really working at understanding ourselves and our minds and our hearts in a way that transforms how we live. So we can say that being mindful includes being in the present. So we definitely need that, but it's not enough. And mindfulness, being mindful, includes this quality, what I've been calling the observing power of the mind, where we know that we're knowing, we know what's, we know what's arising like a thought or anything else. And we, it's that meta-knowing, we know that we're knowing. But even this, living in the present and this observing power of mind, this is still not necessarily being mindful. So I hope you see that <laughs> mindfulness is not is not just a necessarily simple thing there are a lot of nuances <clears throat> to really understanding what makes it such a powerful quality of mind. The reason that this observing power is also not enough to really be mindful is that very often we we are observing we're in the present and we are observing what's happening so we know that we're knowing but we may be knowing through all kinds of mental filters and it's like we're, we're wearing we're wearing colored glasses and we're seeing whatever the object is through that particular filter So we might be experiencing or observing our experience through the filter of greed, of wanting. So we're in the present and we know what the object is and we're observing it, but there's also this wanting or greed in the mind or there might be (coughs) aversion or resistance to what's there. Maybe it's unpleasant and we're observing it, but through the filter of aversion or through the filter of delusion where we're kind of there, but it's not really clear. So the Buddha gave a few uh, uh, very apt similes for these three filters. And sometimes when the Buddha uses examples or similes, I find that often I will read them. Oh yeah, that that resonates. But I don't necessarily take the simile in and look to see how it describes my own experience. And so what I suggest as, as I just read the similes for these three states, they're very apt. And so I would suggest you really seeing how they, how they are expressive in your own experience <coughs> of these states because then it helps us to recognize them more easily. So this is kind of the Buddhist description. He said, there's no fire like lust, no grip like anger, no net like delusion. Okay, so it's three very simple images. The next time you happen to be consumed by or overwhelmed by lust, just, if you can remember this, just just really look to see, does this make sense? Is is this like a fire in the mind? And my experience over many years of watching that and many other similar mind states it is like a fire it is like a burning or the grip of anger the grip of a very you know when when strong anger in the mind doesn't feel like we are gripped or the net you know it's like just everything covered by a net of delusion <coughs> The problem is, as we try to move to this more refined understanding of mindfulness, which is the observing power of mind (coughs) free of greed, hatred, and delusion. That really gets to the heart of the quality and the purity of mindfulness. So that we're with experience, we're observing experience without those particular filters the problem is that these filters of greed and hatred and delusion the buddha called them the three unwholesome roots they they are the they are the qualities in the mind out of which all other unwholesome mind states arise so they they're the fundamental Uh, difficulty or challenge of wanting this greed aversion or resistance of delusion the problem is that they're so deeply conditioned and for so long that they're often unconscious We we don't even know that they're there so I'll give you an example and this is just one example of Countless ones, but it, it has stuck in my mind. It was, it was an experience I had in Burma when I was practicing with Saida Upandita. And I had been there for a month or so and my practice was dropping in and I was just with you know the flow of changing experience. My body was getting more open and an easier flow of energy sensations. But there was this one knot right in my neck like that. So I'd be just being mindful of all this and then my mind would go to that sensation and be with it as best I could. Then when I went to report on my experience to Saido Ubandita, I said, you know, it's, it's all, it all seems to be going well and the body's open and the flow of sensations, but there's this one block, this energy block. And he got on my case for calling it a block. Because I thought I was describing it objectively. You know, okay, there's this energy flow and so there's an energy block. But just in the use of that term, right in it, I was loading the experience with aversion. Block, get rid of it. (laughs) Block, open it. Block, do something about it. Just in the word. And I had had no idea that I was relating to that experience with aversion. I thought I was just seeing it clearly. Oh, this is a block. Do you see how subtle it can be? Just our interpretations of experience and the language we use to describe what's happening, we need to be very watchful. You know, is it. <laughs> Do the words themselves convey wanting, or aversion, or delusion? <clears throat> so, another way of tuning in to whether these filters are present or not. Uh, <clears throat> the description of these states. This is this is from a contemporary teacher. I can't remember who, who described it this way, but I thought it was it was quite. Uh, vivid, they said greed, greed in the mind is pulling in, right? we want. Aversion in the mind is pushing away, we don't want. Delusion in the mind is running around in circles. <laughs> so if the terms greed and aversion and delusion, you know, if somehow they're a little too abstract, in terms of noticing whether they're present or not, you might try these terms. Okay, is there a pulling into experience? Is there a pushing away? Are we just going around really not knowing what's happening? So those are the manifestations of greed, hatred, delusion. Pulling in, pushing away, running around in circles. So according to some schools of Buddhist psychology, and very much part of this particular tradition, mindfulness as a quality of mind is considered to be always wholesome. So if mindfulness is present that means that the mind is in a wholesome state. So even if we're being mindful, for example, of aversion, or, or greed, or wanting, it's actually very interesting to observe, and this is getting into a little more refinement, which, you know, as the retreat goes on, you may be able to tune into. In the moment of being mindful of anger, we're not angry. You know, there's been that moment of disidentification with the anger, which makes the mindfulness possible. And so, again, that just shows the, you might call it the purifying power of mindfulness. So, it doesn't exclude all these other states from being in the field of our awareness, but mindfulness changes our relationship to those states, and that's really what's freeing. So mindfulness, again, now we're coming down to the the fullness of its definition. It's being in the present. It is this observing power of mind that knows that it's knowing, whatever the object is. And we're observing it or being with it without greed, without pulling in, without aversion, without pushing away, without delusion, without just running around in circles. (laughs) So an example, I want to just give two examples of this, and for those of you who have sat many retreats, these stories will be very familiar because I've been talking about them for the last 30 years. But somehow they seem as apt today as they did uh, 30 years ago. So, sorry. <laughs> uh, but I think they do, they do highlight just what I'm talking about. So, as, as many of you know, and I've talked about quite a lot over the years, kind of one of the major uh, afflictive emotions, you know, or defilements, that I have seen in my mind over many years, I I would say the predominant negative emotion has been fear. You know, and just at times very strong and particularly earlier on in my practice. And it wasn't fear about anything in particular. It was just a conditioned energy. And sometimes it was completely irrational. You know, there were times when it was so intense that I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. So it doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. But it's just that energy, for whatever reason, was hugely strong. So I was working with it a lot. You know, fear, 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 fear. So in working with fear... and I'll I'll get to the end of the story in a moment. (laughs) But in working with it, it highlighted a very important distinction, and one that is often missed. There's a lot of confusion between these two aspects, and that is the distinction between recognition and mindfulness. Because very often we think that if we recognize what's there, we are being mindful. But recognition by itself doesn't take into account the filters through which we're looking, right? So all that time I was noting fear, 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 fear. It was always with the energy of wanting it to go away. But because I was recognizing it, I thought I was being mindful. This went on for years. I mean, this was a, str- yeah, this was a strong pattern, and it wasn't continuous, of course, but it would come up very often. And then finally, I was actually doing walking meditation just outside, and it was in the spring. Uh, and then something shifted, all of a sudden something shifted, and the shift was expressed in the thought, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. So it's okay became a magic mantra for me because that it's okay represented the shift from seeing the fear through the filter of aversion and wanting to push it away to seeing the fear with acceptance. That was really the first moment of mindfulness in all those years of practice. So under do you see the difference between recognition and mindfulness and how we can recognize something, but it's not necessarily yet being mindful because we have to look at what filters are in the mind. So I want to read this, and again, many of you will be familiar with this, (coughs) but it's one of my very favorite examples of an extraordinary mind of mindfulness and equanimity in the face of a major challenge. And it's, <coughs> it's a story I read about the death of Henry David Thoreau, who died quite young. He was 44 and he died of TB. And it was a very... You know, challenging illness so this is uh, what was written is was written by a friend of his henry was never affected never reached by his illness very often i've heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever he remarked to me this is this is quite remarkable he remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. So that line. There was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. Isn't that quite amazing? I mean, somebody who's basically dying, you know, a severe painful illness but with the mind that is mindful that is aware of what's arising without pulling in or pushing away or delusion the awareness you could say conforms to or simply embraces or opens to whatever the condition is and It's often, or certainly in this situation, it may be unpleasant. But with mindfulness, unpleasant experience does not condition aversion. With mindfulness. Mostly it does. Our conditioning is something is painful, we don't like it, we want to push it away. So mindfulness is radical. You know, mindfulness is saying, there's another whole way of being with some of the most challenging times of our lives, including the dying process. You know, Can we be mindful in the way that Thoreau was? It's pretty remarkable. So this is what we're practicing, you know, and being on retreat in somewhat less trying circumstances than Thoreau was in at that time, but you'll have plenty of opportunities to observe the mind feeling pain, feeling discomfort, whether it's in the body or the mind. Check, really ask yourself, am I being mindful of this, which implies that openness, that spaciousness, that acceptance, or because it's unpleasant, am I pushing it away, you know? And this will take practice. You know, it takes a lot of practice, but can you, can you get a sense of the potential for freedom here? You know, where when our mind does, at least to some extent, even if it's not perfect, but at least to ex- some extent can open to and accept, be mindful of whatever's arising, pleasant or unpleasant. <coughs> tremendous, tremendous freedom. So just the last little piece on Thoreau. So, some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his aunt Louisa asked them if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, aunt. <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful mind. <laughs> So, one indication that we're in that space of recognition without mindfulness, you know, when we know we we recognize what's there, but we're not being mindful, one indication of that is a sense of struggle. If you're sitting or walking or going through the day, kind of, and yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with the feeling of just. things don't feel quite right, and it just feels like there's struggling going on of some kind, whether minimal or some big struggle. So usually we just get caught up in the struggle and then maybe self-judgment about it, or I'm not doing this right, or it's not working, whatever. Instead, you can take those times of struggle, whenever they arise, take it as feedback. Struggle actually is a very useful uh, message to us. It's really like a mindfulness bell because it's a very obvious experience. You know, so when we are kind of in a struggle and we see it as feedback rather than simply being lost in the difficulty of it, what does struggle mean? It only means one thing. It means something is arising that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So It's very simple. You know, if you're feeling discomfort in the body and, you know, know, just struggling. Take that as a signal. Oh, this means that the mind is pushing away, that it's not accepting the experience of this unpleasantness so it's it's waking us up another example of that which again can happen very often in practice for many people there will be many times when your mind does not feel very concentrated you know maybe a lot of thoughts and just a run of thoughts maybe you're getting lost a lot and i know from my own experience that you know when this happens there's often a feeling of frustration, of disappointment, of self-judgment, of evaluation of my practice, all of that. You know, you know, this is terrible, it's not working, I'm just lost in thought all the time. So in that sense of struggle, at one point, I saw the struggle, you know, that I was, the energetic struggle and realized what's happening is, that I am not accepting the fact that the mind is thinking. I didn't like the fact that it was thinking so much. As soon as I saw that, it was like, oh, thinking, 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 thinking. That's what was happening. When I stopped fighting with it, or judging with it, judging it, or struggling with it, then the thoughts ran their course and the mind settled Back down again. Practice went on. So what was the difference? A very simple move. From resistance or not liking to acceptance. To saying yes, this is what's happening now. Lots of thinking. Do you see how simple this can be? Uh, my first teacher, Meningradji, he had a very good f- phrase for practice. He said, It's simple, but not easy. It's not easy because of the depth and power of our conditioning, but it's not complicated. It's really very simple. And so that's why we simply practice. And as we practice, it gets easier. So the question, one of the questions for us, is how do we move from black lab consciousness to the observing power of the mind to mindfulness. How how is that move accomplished? So there are a few very simple techniques uh, which you can play with, experiment with, see which are useful for you in this trajectory. So one tool that many people find helpful uh, is the tool or the technique of mental noting. You know, where we're with our experience and we're just putting a very soft mental label on what's happening. So, for example, you might be sitting and in, out, in, out with the breath, hearing, hearing, thinking, in, out, from pain, tightness, in, out. Just like that. Moment after moment, we're just putting a very soft mental note on the experience. And this helps to focus the attention, to bring some clarity to what it is that we're observing. It's a check on whether we're actually connecting with the object or not. And it also serves another purpose because the tone of the note will very often reveal the quality of the observing mind. You know, so even if we may miss those filters of aversion or wanting, because they may be you know, too subtle for us to pick up, the tone of the mental note in our minds is more obvious. So if you're sitting and noting, thinking, 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 <laughs> okay, that's a little sign. That's <laughs> not exactly acceptance. <laughs> and what's so amazing, and this, this is really a, quite an uh, interesting aspect of the practice, and would be fun for you to play with, uh, is to see how by simply changing the tone of voice in the note, it changes our mind state. So it's a, very, it's a very simple and effective way to move from resistance or aversion or greed to mindfulness. So instead of thinking, 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 we change the tone, oh. thinking, 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 just there, just just in that moment. The mind has settled back into openness, into receptivity. So this tool of noting can be used very effectively for continuity of mindfulness, for really seeing what the various attitudes in the mind are. I would encourage all of you to at least experiment with this some people some meditators find this technique of noting super helpful and can do it all day they just spend the whole day moment after moment noting what's arising very softly very easily for other people that may seem too daunting or whatever it doesn't it doesn't so much uh, resonate to do as a continuing, pra- continuous practice but i would really encourage you to at least play with it for periods of time so that it becomes a tool in your toolbox. Doesn't mean that you have to use it all the time, but there will be times in your practice where this tool of noting is hugely helpful. You know, when you're caught up in some big storm and very hard to find some stability or balance in the midst of it, The tool of noting can be a huge stabilizer, you know, even if you were just noting, storm, storm. But in every moment of that note, the mind is being mindful, it's in balance. So again, I would just encourage you to experiment with it as much or as little as you like, but become familiar with the potential of it, you know, and then you can use it as needed. Saito you know, Saida who has taught in this country, you know, in these last few years, and uh, his approach is very uh, open and spacious and doesn't particularly use things like noting, uh, or even necessarily, you know, using the breath as an anchor. Um, what he emphasizes, and which can be incorporated into the practice we're doing, something he suggests to do very often, uh, he says, check the attitude in the mind. And that speaks to that point of noticing the filters. Right? So what I call filters, he's calling attitudes. You know, is there the attitude of wanting or resistance, pushing away, you know, or fear or whatever it may be. So when he says, check the attitude, it's really reminding us, even as we're connecting with, Different elements of experience, like the breath or sensations or sounds. That by itself is not enough. We need to check to see if we're experiencing those things through a filter or not. You know, and so when he says check the attitude, that's just a way of looking in to the mind and seeing, okay, is there something else here? I'll give you an an example of how I use this. And it was quite startling to me. So I had heard this instruction from him, and I was actually in the hall here. I was just sitting, just feeling my breath. It was just in, out, in, out. Very simple. I was just feeling the breath. And then I remembered, came to mind. Oh, I was side, I said, check the attitude. So. Then I looked, you know, oh, well, what's the attitude here? And much to my surprise, when I did that, it actually what happened, it was so interesting. Just by uh, having that thought come to mind, oh, check the attitude. Just in the moment of having that thought, I could feel the mind settle back from a leaning forward, mentally and energetically, that I didn't even know what was going on. I thought I was just with the breath. You know, just you know, I was so simple and you know, done it for 45 years. But, oh, check the attitude, and then And in that moment of settling back, which happened by itself, I realized that even as I was watching the breath in this very simple way, there was a subtle wanting It was like an an in-order-to mind. I'm with the breath in order to become concentrated, in order to settle, in order to whatever, in order to accomplish something or get something. That in-order-to is just another aspect of the wanting mind. And in that simple statement, check the attitude, and settling back, that fell away. And I saw what mindfulness really was. You know, of just feeling the breath, exa- the sensation of the breath, exactly as it presented itself, without wanting. Without leaning into. Without expectation. Without an in order to. So there's one principle of meditation that if you really take in and embody will save you endless amounts of suffering. Ready? (laughs) In the meditation practice, what's important is not what it is that's arising. What's important is how we're relating to it. So we're not practicing to have particular experiences in Vipassana practice, in inside practice. We're practicing a certain relationship to what's arising. So that's what we want to really be paying attention to. And this is everything I've been talking about. Mindfulness means relating to experience without those filters of wanting or expectation or resistance or aversion. So this is our practice. It's not, you're not sitting and, oh, if only my mind would become like this or that or have this experience or whatever. Can we just settle back in in a really relaxed way? The body breathes by itself. You don't have to make any effort to breathe. Just sit back and let the body breathe. And check the attitude. Are you there in the simplicity of it, or is there, I'm doing this in order for something to happen? Or we're feeling some discomfort in the body. Can we be like Thoreau? You know, as much perfect comfort Perfect disease is in perfect health. Or is there resistance to discomfort? The discomfort's not the problem. It's all how are we, we relating to what's arising. Is this clear? This This is a fundamental principle of meditation and one that people hear very often and just as often forget. Because the, the it's almost like the, uh, The energy of our consumer culture has infiltrated into how we do the practice, you know, in terms of wanting and getting. And and this is about something else entirely. This is about freedom. Let's just give another example of the liberating power of mindfulness. And it works in so many interesting ways, and sometimes it's so simple what will unhook us from suffering. So one of the common tendencies in the mind, which I'm sure you've noticed, uh, is just the tendency to judge and have comments about everything. And I saw this in particular, I've been on retreat many times here, and I noticed particularly for me, every time I went into the dining room, you know, at mealtime, my mind had a comment about everyone what they were wearing how much food they took how mindful i thought they were being (laughs) and just everybody that came into my view (laughs) it was ridiculous it was totally ridiculous and yet this is what the mind was doing so after being caught in it for a long time you know this this pattern was very strong so i just began to investigate well what what is going on here and then at a certain point I connected with the basic teaching of the Buddha, but which I had not applied in this situation. And I just started noting seeing. As soon as I would walk into the dining room from the very first step in, that's all I would note. Seeing, 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 I'd get my food, seeing, seeing, sit down at the table, seeing. When I became mindful of the fact that I was seeing the judgments completely disappeared. Because all of those judgments and comments were fueled or uh, came into being or encouraged by unmindful seeing. My eyes would land on somebody and I wasn't mindful that I was seeing and then the whole proliferation of thought and judgment and concept. All because I wasn't, oh, seeing, seeing. It was that simple. As soon as I brought it back to the level of bare attention, of just the bare sense impression, and having mindfulness right there at the point of contact, psh, all that mental proliferation fell away. So again, it's, it's not that it took any great effort. It just took understanding. You know, It, it took a little bit of investigation. Okay, well, what's the cause of all these judgments? Oh because I'm seeing and not being mindful. So I hope you get a sense that this is a very powerful cutting through quality of mind. You know, of all of the stories and difficulties and dramas that we get caught up in, there is a way through it all. There is really a a way uh, to find the freedom in the midst of it. So, I'm about halfway through, (laughs) but but, uh, I'm going to spare you because one of my conditionings, one of my teachers, my first teacher, Munindraji, this was in my first years of practice in India, we're sitting on the roof, the open roof of the Burmese vihara in Bodh which is, at that time there were very few Westerners. This back in the late '60s, maybe there were I don't know six or seven of us uh, practicing with him there. <laughs> he gave a three-hour talk on the twenty-one kinds of silence. <laughs> <laughs> And I was, a, even now, it would be a huge challenge. But then I was kind of a beginning yogi. After an hour, an hour and a half, I really wanted to throw him off the roof. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, enough already. <laughs> so I'm very sensitive to <laughs> Dharma talks in time. So we'll continue uh, the rest of this uh, in the days to come. But I'll just end with uh, teaching by Tibetan uh, Rinpoche, Zingar Kongchul Rinpoche, because it just captures, I think, what is so important for us as we enter into the retreat and engage with the practice. He said, the potential for realization for freedom is universal and present for all of us True benefit will come from your own efforts. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. And so this is the great, for me, great inspiring message of the teachings. It's not about belief and it's not about just blind faith is about each one of us walking on this journey of understanding. And there is a way to do it, there is a methodology that has been practiced for thousands of years. Um, so that's, you know, that can be the feeling, and even at times the joy you bring into the practice, you know, as you walk on the path.
0: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp hlash insight hour.